And so what we're very proud to be able to share is that we've refurbished and reused over 2 million pounds of furniture in the past few years since we started this business. And so that means we put it in circulation, we get the product back, we refurbish, refinish it, and get it back out again, give it a second life, give it a third life, give it a fourth life. And that's just the nature of our business model. So we can talk about other sustainability efforts in terms of sourcing supply chain that many other retailers are focused on, but at the core of our business is this notion of circularity, which is so distinct from everyone else in this category of furniture that it's super exciting for us. It's great to be able to share that message and share that story because we've built our business on the foundation of sustainability, the core to our DNA. We're not trying to go find a message that may or may not be genuine out there as a legacy brand. We built the brand with this in mind. Welcome to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes. Hear inspiring stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain. You'll learn how you can make a difference, vote with your dollars, and get involved today. Here's your host, Karina Belizzi. Hello, fellow do-gooders and friends. I'm your host, Karina Belizzi. If you're at all like me, you probably try to buy everything you can locally and often used so you're not contributing to the world of overconsumption, wasteful emissions, and more. But what about the way that you furnish your home? I've personally managed to get my past two couches on the used marketplace, but let me tell you, that was a chore. I ended up buying something that wasn't quite right for my aesthetic, and as a result, it stands out in a way that I wish it wouldn't. Well, this problem could be a thing of the past as one man seeks to solve this problem. Michael Barlow is the co-founder and CEO of Furnish. He set his vision on changing the way people create and relate to their homes. After completing his fifth move in eight years, how many of you have experienced something like that? I mean, that's the reason I no longer have a record collection. Let me tell you what. At any rate, he founded this company back in 2017. Furnish is a furniture as a service business designed to bring furniture into the service economy, give people the freedom to rent, to swap, to rent to buy, to buy or return furniture as their life and living situations can change. Prior to starting Furnish, Michael was vice president of Adam Tickets and started his career at J.P. Morgan, where he focused on mergers, acquisitions, and leveraged finance, skills that I'm sure that he utilizes today in his role at Furnish. Michael Barlow, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Karina. I love the personal story and touch points about moving and buying sofas. I imagine everyone has those stories. Well... I got to tell you, you know, it's hard to find something that you love in a color you love. And I think that came from the reality of going couch shopping and not seeing anything locally that I really liked. And then I was able to find something that did the job, but wasn't again what I really wanted. And so I just bought it. And how many of us do that? You select something that's okay for now. And then that for now ends up being 10 years. <laughs> You're looking at the eyesore and yeah, don't really have an easy way to solve it, right? Yeah, totally. Especially if you have a, you know, you're renting an apartment with roommates, right? Which is our core use case from our customer cohorts where you don't know how long you're going to be in a certain place with a certain 
set of living companions or a certain job or in a certain city, especially if you're a millennial or Gen Z demographic. And, you know, why should you buy, own, move, sell, store, and then dispose or find a way to resell furniture? Like talk about headache, hassle, cost. I mean, everything you're going through, you know, these generations that are, you know, say mine and, and later are feeling acutely every day. So let's get started with a deeper understanding of what really motivated you to do this. I mean, seven moves in five years, was that it? <laughs> or five moves in seven years? It sounds the same to me. They're both kind of hell. <laughs> well, you hate, you know, after death, you're most scared of moving, even more scared of that than taxes. So, you know, Karina, my experience after finishing undergrad in New York was not dissimilar from pretty much everyone in our, you know, in my or our peer group. It was... You know, you're living with roommates in a dense urban area, whether that be Atlanta, DC, Boston, Denver, Los Angeles, Seattle, et cetera. Like that list of top 15 cities is, is pretty much like the set for a urban young professional with an undergrad degree. And, you know, you're moving every one or two years, sometimes every three years, depending. But I think with the rise of remote work, mobility has continued to shift upwards for the younger demographics. And how are you furnishing your space? That's really the problem and pain point we set out to solve with Furnish. And it's definitely built on an acute personal pain point. You know, me having to go to Ikea and assemble products and then leaving them in the apartment and on the side of the road because it's going to cost more to move them from the Upper East Side down to, you know, Greenwich Village. So we talked for a moment about the Ikea culture of college and early grad life, or even just as you're getting started out. And the frustration that people can have building their own furniture. It feels like you need a PhD to <laughs> assemble a cabinet in a way. But you're doing something unique with Furnish where you have a little bit of a white glove service. So why don't you talk about that? And then I also want to understand or to comment on the fact that, you know, when people buy quality, you know, it may not be the cheapest. It may not be an IKEA price point, but what can they expect to pay for? let's say one of your most popular units and how do you think that compares to the life cycle of the product? So I'd like to touch on those two things as we get started. Yeah, Karina, great question. Something that we as a business and business model have really thought deeply about. In terms of sourcing quality product, we definitely have a bar, not just around style and design, which we like to be attractive and you know fashion forward to a generation of folks who want to be proud of the space they're living in, but it comes down to durability, to modularity, to refurbishability of that product, because that ultimately drives the useful life of a product up from something that you're not willing to move, you know, a hundred city blocks, let alone to a new city and pay a couple hundred dollars to movers. And so you just leave it on the side of the road to something that you want to potentially resell or feel very good about returning to the manufacturer a la furnish in our business models case or bringing with you as opposed to constantly buying like this fast fashion meets furniture trend which is environmentally damaging and bad for like one psyche anyway let alone all the you know hassles and pains and costs in there so we focus definitely on a combination of durability and style for our products and the other bucket you asked about is price point you know, from that perspective, you think about what does some of the like comparable brands in retail furniture sell their products for? So we like to comp ourselves to two brands that speak to our, I'd say, demographic. You know, CB2 one of them is one of them, West Elm is the other. And so 
we've been inspired by a lot of those products and the quality of those products. Although ours, I would say, you know, without a doubt are definitely more durable and purpose built for the rental and circular economy. But the price points are also similar, Karina, that would retail for $2,000, you know, at West Down, we might have a comparable sofa that is, you know, $60 a month and you pay for as long as you need it. And if you fall in love with that sofa, you can buy it out with the difference of what you've paid already and, you know, very obviously stated MSRP of that product on our website. And you just pay the difference into your building equity, so to speak, over time. That whole business model, I mean, we were shocked when it didn't really exist. Like it's a no brainer for, let's say myself, my co-founder in this business and sort of everyone we talked to for, we got 900 data points before feeling confident enough to launch this business from people that were living in 10 different cities. You know, this isn't just New York and LA, you know, this is Atlanta, Phoenix, Denver, Miami, Nashville, Dallas, Seattle. So kind of this whole list of, of cities, people are feeling the same pain points. And we built a solution directly to solve that. And again, that's more of the business model side of it. I think our eyes were definitely open to the huge amount of waste this industry created as we've got deeper and deeper into the category in general. Well, I'll give you a couple for instances that come from the world of trade shows, because I think they can supply people with a, an idea of what some of these programs can look like. There are furniture rental companies that have made it their business to service things like trade shows and hotel related events. And you will go to those events and you might pay essentially half the price of the item just to rent it for a couple of days. And then you return it and you feel like, oh, well, I've just wasted a bunch of money. So I actually know people who do tours and education that go around the country and they just say, Oh, I just buy new. I go to the town, I go to the store, I buy it new, and then I resell it on Facebook or something like that because it would be too much money to rent it. And so I know that there has been a rental model for these things like business events, right? That's more what you think of, or even for, let's say, short-term rental apartments and things like that. But generally speaking, neither of these is really known for their quality. So neither of these is really known for their quality. And so what stood out for me when I looked at your specific site is that the designs look like they're made from wood. They're kind of current because they're on trend with this love for mid-century modern. And that fits with my aesthetic and the sorts of things that I'm liking. I either like furniture that's super classic or by super classic, I mean, heavy, hardwood, durable, and like old fashioned, right? Yeah. <laughs> or this kind of mid-century modern. So you're really on point there. You speak about trade shows, Karina, and that is a very interesting business model where you can make a lot of money. We're not in that business. That's a certain type of product. And weddings, just general events, rental. I remember for our wedding, just the rental, we got married on a vineyard in California and like to rent everything from the tent to the chairs. I mean, I feel like we paid more than the retail cost to rent them for two days than than we would have otherwise, but that's just the industry and people are used to paying that. You know, that's not where we are today because honestly, it doesn't tie into our mission. You know, the mission of our business, which we like to start every conversation with is to make it effortless to create your home. And, you know, an event rental business is not what we're inspired to create. It's not solving the pain point that unites our team and our customers and, you know, drives us every single day forward and gets us excited. Well, let's talk about your sourcing because you mentioned some brands that people might know of, but they're likely just, you know, 
furniture pieces that are constructed in faraway places. So how is your sourcing perhaps different and what is different about your model that you think really helps you to serve people in a more sustainable fashion to make this not only an affordable option, but also one that's better for the planet? Great question. And I, I, we built our business model around exactly what you're saying, like flexibility, convenience, affordability, and sustainability. And all of these aspects and value props are important to our customers. And we're able to market and message those. And we feel great about that like unified business model across a number of vectors. Sourcing is absolutely key to a lot of those factors. And our model, as mentioned earlier, is durability, modularity, and refurbishability. And you have to hit certain criteria, whether you be you know, hardline case goods, whether that be a desk, a chair, a dresser, or upholstery. Upholstery, a sofa, a sectional, an accent chair. And we have certain standards there that meet our, what we'll call purpose-built for the circular economy or circular-ready approach. And we source that product. A majority of our product is actually coming from a majority of our design and manufactured product is coming from Mexico and Canada and the US, so North America broadly. And we were started making that transition in 2019. And we continue to push more and more of our supply chain into a nearshore model as opposed to shipping it over from Asia. That's you know a decision we've made, and we actually think we have more control over timing. We have more control over highly variable shipping rates for containers, but you also have a very consistent story around CO2 emissions and trying to you know, lessen that footprint and make that just a, a more consistent brand message. Because if we were shipping everything from Asia, I mean, shipping from Asia is like 17% of carbon emissions for the world every year, like that corridor from Asia to North America. So anything we can do to dampen that impact on the environment is a big win for us and a big focus area too. So as far as these sustainability efforts come into play, you mentioned 17% emissions. I mean, that's a big chunk to cut down from. I imagine you aren't getting to zero, but when you're talking about from Mexico to Canada to the States, that's really critical. But when we spoke before coming on this recording, you also said that you have individuals working in more regional bases. So can we talk for a moment about that? I'd like to, our audience to understand that. Yeah, Karina, Absolutely. Similar to your approach, we are a very local business model. We have our own fulfillment footprint. So we have our own fulfillment facilities on a local basis. So if you're in Dallas, we have people on the ground there operationally, delivery, assembly, refurbishment folks that are able to service a certain mile radius directly. And that's how our business works. Same thing in New York and DC and Southern California, Pacific Northwest, et cetera. And that enables us one to have you know a local touch and control the customer experience as well as to understand localized product trends you know our most popular SKUs in manhattan are very different than dallas one can imagine that given just the cost of living in the space constraints that one market has over the other so that's a really important part for us and what we do from an we'll call it an asset management perspective assets being the furniture we keep everything localized. So we're never transporting inventory from New York to Los Angeles to Seattle. That just one wouldn't be cost effective and wouldn't necessarily play into the environmental story or the footprint reduction story that we have been able to message consistently to our customers. So we're moving inventory only on a local basis. You might pick it up from one zip code in Southern California and deliver it back to the refurbishment center to another zip code in Southern California in two days. So everything's local for us, which is an important aspect of just our operational profile, 
but also important for our messaging and inventory management and sourcing plan, et cetera. So let's say I decided I chose, let's say a dresser on your site that I fell in love with. There was a couple that were made really nicely of just some real wood. And I was kind of perusing there. Let's say I chose this item and I decided to rent it, but then my toddler put a giant gouge in the side of it. What happens then? With a hammer, with a flamethrower? Like, <laughs> tell me more, Karina. I mean, my toddler does these things. So, no, I have a piece of furniture in my living room. It's a beautiful cherry wood, mahogany stained, like piece I've had for over 20 years at this point. And he took a crystal rock and just scratched the whole surface, you know? So I know these things happen. It's yeah. happened in my house. You know, the surface of it is now pitted. And we joke that we'll just replace it when the kids are out of the house, but I'm not willing to live with this for another 15 years. Yeah. So I want to know what you think about something like this and how the company handles it. It's a varying degree of normal wear and tear versus like destruction. I think one, well, this is some reason why we don't rent to colleges. I remember myself in undergrad and I definitely didn't respect the furniture in my dorm or otherwise, but you know, for us, normal wear and tear can actually go to some pretty heavy use cases. And we're able to do that because we can swap out a veneer top, you know, our most popular desk, which is called the Pilsen. And we just take off the top, put a new top on, right? And that's all essentially, you know, it's plastic, right? So even that's recyclable. And the rest of the desk looks brand new. You just polish the steel on the legs. That's like one example of something that we've developed expertise around. And that's that parts-based replenishment of how our whole operational structure works. And you'd actually be amazed from woodworking perspective, what we can give some of our materials experts in our refurbishment centers. And you're like, oh, this is beat up. Like, there's no way they're going to be able to make this look like new. And Karina, come back in an hour, just one hour. And that product literally looks like new with a combination of sanding, with a combination of new varnish. And you know, sometimes Bondo, wood glue, et cetera. And then we get it back out as quickly as possible in a like new state. The second the product can't meet this like new condition, and maybe what you're talking about where your toddler takes a crystal rock and gouges the side of a bookshelf or the side of a dresser, that could fall into the camp of not normal wear and tear, in which case the customer of ours would pay the incremental cost where we'd offer them to buy it out at a discount. So. You know, you can't light our furniture on fire either, like cigarette butts into the side of a cushion. I mean, what we do is we just replace a cushion and we'll charge you for a cushion or we'll replace the cover of a cushion. This is this whole aspect of modularity, which is really important for our sourcing and our supply chain strategies, which is very different than a typical retailer. Well, it sounds like you're talking about kind of harnessing the power of a repair economy at the same time. And that's what I wanted to get at with this, because I think so often we've just entered this world of disposability. I mean, that's what the Ikea model is built on. That's what the fast fashion model is built on. And frankly, that's what the mobile phone world is ultimately getting to the point of being built on, right? You have to go through a new phone every three years. I have this workhorse here that's, I'm still keeping it as my second functional phone. I've literally had it for six years. It's an Android. I love it. And it's the one that I will take with me on a run. And if I drop it, it still survives. And if my toddler hugs it across the room, okay, eventually it's going to stop working. But it's going to be this one as opposed to, 
you know, yeah, this is the one that's like more current. And I happen to keep them both for the reason that I'm also a mother and I have to be reachable. And I've had the instance where suddenly it just stopped working. And what do you do then? Right. And so this gives me some peace of mind too. One is the phone that people have that number and the other phone is more like my private line. And so I'm able to balance my life a little better. Now I'm not advocating for everybody to go out there and get two pieces of furniture. I'm just using it as an example of how if we have something that we can have faith in that's more durable, that can stand the test of time. And for me, that's why I'm on Android as opposed to iPhone. And we could get into a conversation about that, but I, I won't. <laughs> we could, a whole separate podcast. Yeah, so, but it's, you know, you want to have some modularity. I went out of space on this. I can insert a chip, you know, like I've got more. It's got the ability to grow with me, which is something that a lot of phones have planned obsolescence around. And frankly, that's yeah. how I think we've built our furniture, like planned obsolescence. So you're talking about returning us to more of a quality, to having a piece of furniture serviced in a way that's going to make it durable with time. I also, this is, I'm going to speak to my home here. I have rather expensive couch upstairs and I love it. This is the one that I love. I have a South facing window and every couch I've put in that area has gotten sun bleached and pretty quickly. This is a very saturated color. So I know it's only going to look good for maybe three years, possibly four if I'm lucky. So, I mean, are there elements that you even have in space for this to say, okay, we'll just reupholster the whole thing because otherwise it's great. Yeah. It's a curious use case. We like to give our furniture a second, a third, a fourth life. But at the end of the day, if you can't stand behind a promise of like new for a customer, then you have to find a different disposition channel. We have a couple of those, right? So if we use something for three years and it comes back sun bleached, I mean, we could reupholster it. It's going to be a cost benefit analysis of the cost of reupholstering the product versus the kind of revenue that specific product has made us in excess of the cost to manufacture that product in the first place. And then you make a very informed data-driven decision, which is managed by our in-house ERP system, which is also an Android-based system, by the way, Karina, Android app-based system that we've built to manage our layer of asset management and inventory management. You're able to go through a number of disposition channels, whether they be branded marketplace models where we can sell product in bulk at scale at a pretty good margin, or what we like to do in terms of social give back at least once a year for our you know, various uh, localized efforts is work with a local nonprofit. Sometimes it's a homeless shelter, or sometimes it's, you know, we've done a variety of donations across our different markets, but it again speaks to the local decision maker, this localized decision making and the impact that we're driving as a local business in all of our, in all our markets, because we're, we're local employers, which ties nicely into how it sounds you like to consume, which again, like is why we're very aligned and speaking here today. So you spoke for a moment about these partnerships. What can you tell me about this Holos Communities partnerships as an example of that? Yeah. So Holos Communities is a partner who's actually, it's what we call a non-holiday or like an off-cycle donation. Folks that we've worked with and known in the Southern California community, which is our home base, proudly based in, you know, companies in Los Angeles. And it's a more transient living shelter where we wanted, and we spent a good amount of time with that management team, we wanted folks who were staying there to feel proud of where they were staying, not to have some 
really low budget rundown products in terms of furniture, counting on a very small budget that this nonprofit had to go out and procure furniture. So we set up a good part of a building for them in downtown Los Angeles. And I think it was really well appreciated. And people walk in, not necessarily in the best situation economically and for a variety of reasons that, you know, it's hard to get there and it's a hard place to be. But if you're able to provide a little bit of joy and grace through partnership with an organization like that, that's exactly what we stand for as a business. So that's something actually we, we've done very recently specifically. So I'm glad you brought it up because it's something our team is definitely excited about in our hometown of LA. Well, if you're looking for collaborations like that up in the Santa Cruz County area, I know a few quite well. We've donated a lot to the Gray Bears organization and they are in Santa Cruz. What they do is, you know, really help older adults. They both help to employ older adults who may not want to work a full-time job anymore, but also provide furniture, things like that, housewares to the aging community. They call it Gray Bears, right? Another one is the Santa Cruz Women's Shelter, and I actually helped to support the creation of the Shannon Collins Memorial Garden there. I have a few friends that are on the board, but what they really do is help women who are displaced or in need of a new space of their own, often who have been victims of domestic abuse and who are looking for that next start in life. And they're very active in the Santa Cruz community. So single women, often mothers looking for the leg up that they might need. And Karina, that's amazing from a donation perspective, and it's the right thing to do if we're in position to do it and you're in position to do it. But that's also where the local insight and local teams make these decisions, why it's so important. We can't be dictating it, a donation in New York City if we're all living in Southern California. Like, how would we know? How do we know what matters to our customers or constituents or stakeholders, et cetera? All right. Well, I, I like to mention this just as an idea for people because often they say, oh, well, I donate to Goodwill Industries because it's easy because they know where they are and their donation centers are potentially easy to access. And, you know, really, if you have personal things that you're looking to get rid of, often you can find a facility that will put them directly into the hands of someone who really needs it yeah. and might not even be able to afford one of those steps. I think it's just really nice to get a little bit more engaged with your local community so that your funds and also the goods that you might donate can get to put the most good into the world. Yeah, 100%. So I think we've talked a lot about what makes Furnish different, but is there anything that you feel we've missed? Like, what do you feel is like the sweet spot of where you do just a really effective, great job and are seeking to build that better future? Yeah, Karina, I think the one thing I'd say there, and it's something that really unites our team, our customers, et cetera, is just a circularity of our business model in general. I think there's a lot of innovation that's been done on the apparel side for marrying the circular economy with reuse, recycling, resale. Public companies like ThreadUp or public companies like Rent the Runway, they've made a big impact there. You know, we are very similarly blazing that trail in the furniture category, which is also nine-figure category north of $100 billion a year. And so, so much of that product ends up in a landfill after a single use. And so what we're very proud to be able to share is that we've refurbished and reused over 2 million pounds of furniture in the past few years since we started this business. And so that means we put it in circulation, we get the product back, we refurbish, refinish it, and get it back out. Again, give it a second life, give it a third life, give it a fourth life. And that's just the nature of our business model. So we can talk about other sustainability efforts in terms of sourcing, supply chain, 
that many other retailers are focused on. But at the core of our business is this notion of circularity, which is so distinct from everyone else in this category of furniture that it's super exciting for us. It's great to be able to share that message and share that story because we've built our business on the foundation of sustainability core to our DNA. We're not trying to go find a message that may or may not be genuine out there as a legacy brand. We built the brand with this in mind. There's one more point I wanted to get to, because I think we touched on this a little bit. When you have people come with their white glove service and help people put their furniture together and everything else, you're obviously working with localized regions around the United States in these cases. But what about other people? What about the rest of your workforce? Where do they live, work, and play? Are you going remote? Like, How have you dealt with this pandemic world? You want to say post-pandemic world, but it's not a post-pandemic world. It's just like the world. Are we still in it? I don't know. I... It's just the world. How do you deal with this world? <laughs> I still have to take photographs of a negative COVID test to send my kid back to school this morning. So, you know. <laughs> yeah, public school systems, the whole thing. It's required in, in Los Angeles too. We have the rest of our team, we're about 100 people. And about half are, we'll call corporate, half are more in the field localized operations operational experts and associates. The corporate staff is spread largely in the markets where we operate. So kind of our core metros across East Coast, West Coast, and Texas. But half of the full team, ops plus HQ staff, is in Los Angeles. And that is something that people have moved for sure. And people move And I think 2021 and 2022 were like the years where people jetted all over. Some people might come back to Los Angeles, some might not, but we've been able to build what I'll call like remote muscles in terms of how to manage a team and build a culture and the right mechanisms to check in and nurture that. Not perfect at all, Karina, but no company is perfect. It's always a, a journey to be better or journey to care more, be better, dare I say. And that's something that we, like every other business, especially every other startup over the past two, three years, have been focused on. Well, fantastic. I think it sounds like you've put a really good heart at the center of your team building and ultimately that you're building a better future for furniture. I hadn't really thought about furniture as a service. I have to be frank until we connected and then I'm like, what is this business model? And why didn't it exist before? And that is something that I just think you should be proud of. Now, I was hoping that you could share with our audience before we prepare to wrap here what your hope is for a greener and more sustainable future. Like, What is the picture you would like to paint for people? It's a big question. I think day to day, there's a real impact we can have on elevating consumer consciousness and behavior around you know, the home furnishings category. But I ultimately think that we're not the only category of consumption at all. Like it could be autos, it could be apparel, it could be wherever you're spending your money today and tomorrow, there needs to be more, you could say circular economy, you could say retail, you could talk about regenerative practices, we could talk about more sustainable use of and recycling, but there needs to be more circularity, broadly speaking, in pretty much every asset class. The linear economy by definition of produce, sell, dispose, just isn't like sustainable has like a real meeting. It's like, can it be sustained? In perpetuity, absolutely not. Like we're working, we're a growing population of humans on a planet with finite resources. So by definition, there needs to be more and more reuse to keep up any level of consumption with a growing population when resources are limited, unless we're colonizing Mars with Elon. 
in which case we could have new resources or we couldn't, right? Because I don't know if we're ever going to get there. But everything we know today about that equation that I mentioned makes us feel like we really need to go that direction of reuse and circularity for every asset class. Furniture for us was where we felt passionate and where we thought there was a great opportunity to solve a real pain point with a mission that resonated with a lot of folks, including ourselves. So that's how I'd answer your question, Karina. It's a combination of thinking small, but also thinking big. And hopefully what we can do is inspire another generation of founders to take on and tackle a similar business model in a totally different category, because that needs to happen and it needs to happen over the next few decades for a lot of very good reasons. Well, I think you've summed that up beautifully. I do want to comment that I think we can get to that space more quickly if we follow models around the globe. I'll give you a for instance, like you go to visit Germany and you visit the local grocery store, you pick up a few bottles of sparkling water. You don't put them in the recycle bin after. You take them back to the store and they're refilled. Just like we used to do with Coke bottles and milk bottles back in the day. Yeah. So why can't we just go back to that with the flash of a pan as opposed to waiting for all of these manufacturers to catch on? I personally have transitioned to when I buy milk, I buy in the glass bottle. And locally here we have Strauss Farms and they're pretty readily available even at Knob Hill or Rayleigh store. We can also go to the local health food store and they'll have an option or two like that too, right? But you don't have that for nut milks yet. And a lot of people have transitioned completely to nut milks. And so then you've got these Xyla pack things. And I'm just talking about consumer products because they end up being infinitely, you throw it away or you try to recycle it, right? Yeah. And these Tetra packs, even though I'm in Santa Cruz County and this is like a recycle conscious area, they're not recyclable in my local community. And so I have to then subscribe to a service that sends me a box to break these down and put them in like a brick and send them away using inefficient transport <laughs> because you're sure when yeah. you send something USPS or UPS, those are gas powered vehicles for sure, right? So I'm creating more emissions along the way just to get to some point where it can be recycled, repurposed or reused, right? So why can't we get back quicker and transition to these reuse economies? I've actually stopped drinking as much wine and partially because I'm looking at my waistline and my health, but partially because I'm like, these bottles just go to the recycle bins. And then I've seen even videos that showcase how much of that glass just ends up in landfill. So even though it's inert, it's not being recycled. The blue bin does not mean my conscious, my conscience can just be completely free. And that's a misconception for consumers. Oh, I recycled it. It doesn't mean that it actually successfully gets into a recycling marketplace. Like I could put a sofa in a recycling bin and it's like, there's no way for like 16 different reasons, furniture is an unrecyclable good, even if I put it in a blue trash can. Yeah. They call it wish cycling, right? Wish cycling. There's a really interesting business, Karina, called Loop out of New Jersey, L-O-O-P. Yeah. They've done projects with like even Ben and Jerry's ice cream. Procter & Gamble, yeah, brands. I like what they're doing in terms of CPG packaging. Mm -hmm. And again, it's something that is a model for other industries where, you know, you don't need to throw away a toothpaste tube. You honestly just get a refill of a container. You put your, you wash your container, you get a refill constantly or describe, not constantly. You tell them how often you want to refill of what, of what product. But again, that doesn't 
change the logistics components, although you can move to electric vehicles, you can move to natural gas powered vehicles, which is 10 times more cleaner burning than usual fuel, et cetera. So there's definitely paths to get there across every category. And we're doing our best to make an impact, a meaningful impact on one of the categories and you know, be a model for others. Well, I just think talking about it is key. Thinking about how you can make a difference is key. And I really do like what you're doing. So I want to thank you for the work of Furnish. I'll keep you on my list of companies that I support and ultimately hope to see you continue to succeed. What markets are you looking to penetrate next? Karina, we're looking to, like many startups, to get profitable in our current markets before expanding aggressively elsewhere. But there is nice expansion planned for next year in 2025. But in the meantime, it's all about driving efficiency while improving growth for us. And that's, you know, I'm sure you hear that from every other startup now. And you have to be a business. I mean, I know. I was like thinking, is he going to Canada next? Is it going to stay North America? Or are you going to go to Europe? Do something interesting there. Yeah, there's a lot of opportunity. It's just, you know, what's the right path and what's the right and a measure for that? It's a good question. It's very top of mind here as well. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Do you have any closing thoughts you'd like to share? I'm just happy to be here, Karina. I'm definitely excited about the work you're doing and the megaphone you're giving founders and entrepreneurs and folks in the social justice arena like myself who are trying to do things and that make the world a better place. Awesome, Michael. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Karina. To learn more about Michael's work and Furnish, visit Furnish.com. That's F-E-R-N, like the fern that grows, Furnish.com. As always, you can visit our show notes for direct links to find Michael Barlow, Furnish, and their socials. When you visit caremorebebetter.com, you'll find so much more, including complete transcripts, references to earlier episodes where we may have touched on similar subjects, expanded show notes, and bonus features that you won't find anywhere else. You'll also find links and additional resources. While you're visiting Care More Be Better, please sign up for our newsletter. Subscribers receive a welcome gift. This is free of charge. It's simply our five-step guide to help you get organized, inspire your activism, or even serve as a project management tool. If you have feedback or you want to suggest a future show topic or guest, please send me an email or leave me a voicemail directly from the site too. Just click contact or you can tap on that microphone icon in the bottom right-hand corner and leave me a message. I'd love to hear your voice. Thank you now and always for being a part of this pod and this community because together we really can do so much more. We can even design more responsible living spaces that fit with our aesthetic so we can be happier at home and also more mindful of our long-term sustainability. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts and share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good. 